Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Literary Studies. I am John Yargo, your host. I am excited to welcome Edgar Garcia to the podcast to discuss his new book, Emergency, Reading the Popol Vuh in a Time of Crisis, from University of Chicago Press. Emergency takes nine words, birds, wealth, caves, television, demons, migrations, love, the sun, and Mormons, and weaves a rich transhistorical narrative about the Popol Vuh sacred narrative. In these pages, Edgar explores how this text emerged in conditions of historical violence and persisted through over 300 years, becoming a touchstone for Mesoamerican religious studies, decolonial activism, and literary adaptation. Edgar Garcia is professor of English at the University of Chicago. His previous books are Signs of the Americas, A Poetics of Pictography, Hieroglyphs, and Kipu from University of Chicago Press, and Skins of Columbus, A Dream Ethnography from Fencebrook Books. He has also served as the guest editor of Fence, a literary magazine. Written during the COVID pandemic, Emergency was published in 2022. Welcome to the podcast, Edgar. Thanks, John. I'm happy to be here. There are so many things I admire about Emergency, but I especially loved your prose, the rhythm, the sensitivity to repetition and sound. I'd like to begin by asking you what your approach to the writing of academic prose is. Uh, My approach for Emergency uh, was different than the approach that I've taken in uh, previous works, um, insofar as Emergency is a collection of nine essays uh, which seek to think with uh, the uh, Kichamaya story of creation, the Popol Vuh, uh, rather than only uh, think about, um, uh, to look with its critical, philosophical, religious frameworks, rather than just look at them um, as an objective, alienated outsider. Uh, that entailed, uh, in many ways, uh, performing uh, some of the conceptual and rhythmic structures of the Popol Vuh. So the book is 
loosely structured uh, in its nine essays around the story of the Popol Vuh as it unfolds narratologically, right? mm-hmm. um, uh, just as it begins uh, in, a, uh, uh, in, a, in a crisis of creation. Um, uh, uh, my work begins uh, in a crisis of creation during the pandemic. Um, uh, around the t- same time uh, in the Popol Vuh, narratologically, uh, 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 that the hero twins descend into the underworld uh, to retrieve the uh, flesh substance from which the humans will finally be made. Uh, my book uh, 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 descends into its chapter on underworlds, um, 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 just as the Popol Vuh uh, unfurls uh, into historical contemporaneity, that is the 1550s, uh, when the now lost version upon which the version that we have from 1702 is based, right? The Popol Vuh kind of begins in primordial time of creation, um, which is also contemporary as far as its authors are concerned. Um, 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 It extends into the 1550s, the historical times. My book uh, ends up with an account of uh, Mormonism um, and uh, Mormon engagements with uh, Mesoamerican culture, again, unfurling in the historical time. So in the broader structure, uh, I wanted to uh, participate uh, in the conceptual rhythms of the Popol Vuh and also to bring them to life in more local ways through um, um, onomatopoeic vocalizations um, uh, through various forms of uh, chiasmatic, uh, mirrored um, um, uh, speech, um, 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 uh, reduplicative speech, um, uh, poetic parallelism uh, to be uh, in the Popol Vuh, even as I'm um, um, retelling its story for uh, uh, my contemporary moment uh, in uh, 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 2020 uh, when I wrote the book. And before we um, started recording, we were talking about some of the choices that you made and um, how that advances this goal of thinking with the Popol Vuh instead Mm -hmm. of thinking about it. And we talked a little bit about the choice of no notes, no footnotes, no endnotes. Mm-hmm. as, a, as a, 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 an important choice um, for you. Um, how did that, uh, how did you arrive at that decision? Uh, I get the sense that the paratextual apparatus of the footnote is where authors really say what they mean, right? Uh, it's the, the one place where they allow themselves to speak in the first person in an academic monograph that's supposed to be written in the third person. Uh, I wanted to bring that spirit out of the footnote and into the work itself and speak directly to my readers um, in both first and second person uh, modes uh, to be alive, not just in the text, but to make the text in my holding of it alive for readers as we uh, uh, move through the nine essay analyses. Um, um, of it, I love that. I love the the understanding of the footnote as, in some ways, like a confessional mode or a more direct mode. And by suppressing it, you know, in the margins of the text, um, in some ways, we're like distancing um, our own writing or our own ideas from the audience um, in ourselves. Yeah, uh, and, and I wanted to. Uh, 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 
implicitly do that by writing in an essay form, which to me is always autopoetic and autological. Right? The essay to me is very autological, where um, in a kind of Benjaminian mode, you end up in the object you set out to analyze. And so the, the, the kinds of essays that I wanted to write were exactly in that vein um, to get entangled with my object or just actually to uh, reveal the entanglement with my object that I felt happening uh, in that moment. Mm. That's excellent. And another thing that came up before we started recording was the fact that emergency is in some ways a fulfillment of promises you made in your previous monographs, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Signs of the Americas, uh, my first academic monograph, uh, is a, um, um, a work of literary analysis that makes the overarching claim that um, uh, indigenous sign systems um, like pictography or picture writing, hieroglyphs, kipu or not writing, petroglyphs are not dead or obsolescent signifiers, uh, but in fact, part of an unfolding, uh, palpably alive uh, uh, present of um, art making, poetry writing, uh, philosophical thinking, um, and ecological environmental practices in the present moment here today. That's the main claim of the book is that these are not dead sign systems, but very much part of a living present. Um, I wanted to uh, make good on that promise, right? By doing that with the Popol Vuh, uh, by <laughs> revealing uh, its ongoingness and its uh, life um, uh, today and into um, um, uh, um, uh, a futurity that's always coming at us. Would you read a passage from Emergency? Yeah, of course, I'd be happy to. I'm going to read from the first chapter, uh, or I should say essay, Birds, uh, which, um, um, as I've said, uh, begins in the watery chaos of creation. Uh, but importantly, that is contextualized as the watery, dark chaos of colonialism by its authors. Importantly, at the outset of the Popol Vuh, they say, here in the times of the teaching of Christ, here in Christendom, i.e. colonialism, we will bring light out of the eastern sky. We will bring the sun into existence. That's a very powerful moment for me because you have to consider the actual context of what's happening here. 90% population loss in 1702, uh, mass death, and the cultural loss that comes with such mass death in an oral society uh, where um, elders held the stories, uh, the lifeways, um, the knowledges and practices that went back <laughs> millennia. Um, and when those people die, that stuff disappears. Right? Um, that almost indescribable loss that's happening alongside enforced forgetting right? um, uh, by um, colonial governance, um, uh, um, uh, uh, further uh, suppressing uh, knowledge of, um, of, 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 of what was um, and still amidst all that, amidst such terrifying silence, darkness, watery chaos. These authors say they can still bring the sun out of the eastern sky. They can bring the sun into existence. Uh, this chapter is about that motivation 
of creativity in crisis, of um, of 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 making something out of a, a an apparently lost world, um, um, and one of the features of creation uh, um, um, in that uh, scene um, is onomatopoeia. And so I'm going to read a passage that is about um, uh, the uh, uh, whippoorwill, uh, which sings its night song in the popolbu. This is the Kichimayan automatopoeic name for the whippoorwill, who names itself in its singing. The bird that names itself in its singing, or the animal that signifies itself in its cry, is a constant trope in the popolbu. And such onomatopoeic naming is how the Kichimayan language and Mayan poetics more generally projects its sense of linguistic power in a world of animal beings. Poetry is the attempt to temporarily inhabit the perfect language of animals whose sounds are synonymous with meaning. The contemporary Kichimayan poet Umberto Acabal thus writes, the voice of animals is a reminder, a remainder of the purpose of language. This is my translation. And I've translated from the Kiche Shalash here as purpose. The word also denotes method, order, reason, meaning, line, row, order, arrangement, and attitude. Any of those alternatives would give the poem a slightly different meaning. I've chosen purpose because the poem's act of telling us that animals have language begs consideration of what humans might think the point of human speech is, knowing that it is mere echo of the animal speaking that surrounds and precedes them. The animal purpose of language is the signal for which these words I write now are mere resonance, so why write at all? Why should there be poetry in the world if the animals are out there speaking to us now in a more intimate resolve? What's the purpose of it? This question gets to a still more fundamental question in the Popovu. Why should the gods have made anything after the animals? Why should they want to make humans? The Popovu emphasizes that the animals are linguistically and ontologically perfect beings, self-enclosed wholes who speak their intimacy with the world as such in every utterance. The whippoorwill's song in the underworld is a precise example of this. Sings the whippoorwill in the Kichimayan language transcription of the animal language spoken in Shabalba in the days before humans arrived on Earth. Strikingly, this bird's speech is also heard in the automatopoeic English language name for the bird. In reading these two names next to each other, and and one can hear the natural language of the animal world imposing itself on human terms, shaping two very different human languages into a unified sound and signification. This signifying sound is the most elemental component of what we might call a rhythm of the Americas, a rhythm as migrant as are these migrant birds, as hemispheric as is their yearly migration, as indigenous as is their relation to the land and its varied inhabitants, and as unbound as is their relational network burrowing into the dusty earth and reaching up through the tall grass, trees, life, and death into crisp skies. With such perfect beings in the world, why should the gods make humans? Thank you so much. Um... Some of the things that strike me about this passage, the use of parallelism, which is something you explore later in the book, 
um, the use, the, the way you're spinning out this um, beautiful and evocative passage around the translation of purpose. Mm -hmm. um, what, what are some of the stylistic choices in, in this writing that um, jump out to you as you read it? Um, the parallelism for sure, uh, which it, it shoots through the whole book um, um, insofar as parallelism is the fundamental poetic form of, of, of Mesoamerica, uh, from Mexica poetry to Maya poetry and everything all over and in between. Um, um, and um, um, parallelism, repetition with a difference, right? it shines, it shimmers in the darkness in the night, um, uh, uh, comes uh, with uh, uh, a set of uh, philosophical considerations um, um, and um, normative values, um, 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 such as um, a, an allergy to isomorphy, um, to the idea that objects are self-stable um, uh, or that things uh, have some kind of intrinsic uh, relation that is um, undisturbable, um, um, uh, that words uh, could ever uh, actually capture um, the life of you know of of stuff of things of of matter uh, in the world because matter in a parallelistic cosmos uh, is always changing into other things anyways um, uh, uh, things become other things uh, uh, rather than isomorphy uh, metamorphosis uh, is uh, highly uh, valued um, and the parallelism um, works at you know at least two scales uh poetic sure you find it everywhere uh, but also uh philosophic uh it's meant to show you uh the um, um shifting ground beneath everything that seems um um to be stable uh uh, uh in your world uh and it was uh, a way of reckoning for me at that scale uh with what felt like the world dropping out for me from under me um, in the year 2000, uh, under severe lockdowns, uh, when we had riots in the streets, uh, when uh, uh, many, many people were dying, uh, when fam my family members were grievously ill, uh, when it's, it seemed like the world was falling apart. Uh, the Popo the, the Vu, um, in its parallelistic conception of time, things always change into other things, and they will change into other things again again, um, um, uh, gave me a way of seeing. I, I think that's a beautiful, um, beautiful exploration and um, really indicative of, of a lot of the work you're doing in the book, bringing mm -hmm. these explicit um, comparisons between how you're reading Popovu in 2020 and 2021 and the larger world beyond, mm -hmm. um, beyond mm -hmm. the university or beyond sort of academic production. Mm -hmm. um, I appreciated your keyword approach and the the generativity behind these words, these mm -hmm. nine words. Mm -hmm. um, how did you land on those words? And were there words that might have been included in the alternate universe version of this project? No, the words came like <laughs> spirits in the night and they came all at once. And the nine essay format uh, was locked in from the outset because... I, I suppose uh, nine is a sacred number uh, in Mesoamerica. Um, um, but this is the kind of question that takes me away from um, the 
objective self-commentary that I can do with a lot of my other work. Um, um, and I can speak of only in uh, the genre of storytelling. Um, um, it's the kind of question that gets into the <laughs> because it's the kind of question that gets into the sacredness of this book, um, that it's um, uh, not just uh, a set of ideas uh, and, um, 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 and, and a representation of a particular historical context, uh, but is um, a, a religious book. Um, and, um, and the story I want to tell you, uh, which gets to, you know, why I, can't really say uh, this came from here and this came from the end when that's um, takes me back to a conversation that I was having at Wake Forest um, with a, a scholar of religion there in the audience I was talking about the Popol Vuh and a scholar of uh, religion uh, there asked me why'd you write this book and I said oh well you know I was trapped at home it was the pandemic I had just taught a class on the Popol Vuh and I had all the books at my house and it seemed like it was the thing to do because I had nothing. He, he didn't accept it though, the scholar. Why did you write this book though? Why did you write this book? And I said, oh, well, you know, uh, as, 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 a, as a person of Central American background, having the Popol Vuh always around in a way as a kid, uh, it, it felt like uh, an attempt for me to make good on a particular historical inheritance that I hadn't really, you know, fleshed out. No, 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 no. Why did you write this book? Well, you know, my daughter, she's she's going to hopefully read my work someday, one hopes. Uh, and, and, and I wanted to write a book that would be accessible, or, you know, for a kind of more general readership about our uh, cultural inheritance. No. Why did you write this book? You wouldn't let it go until I said, well, you know what? Sometimes the ancestors won't let you go. And I swear to you, this happened. I'm putting it on recording here because I'm completely confident that anybody at Wake Forest who was there that day can confirm this. All our phones buzzed. The university alarms went off with a tornado warning. There was a, at that very moment, at that moment that I said that, right, the sky opened up. The winds shot at us. And we all had to decamp to continue our conversation in the basement. That happened. It's one of those things. I don't, I don't, I don't know. You know I can't, there's no, you know, there's no adequate meta commentary for that other than just the story. Right. Um, um, and so much of the book, for that reason, to honor the religious nature of this work, really commits itself to the story. Um, and it's not just the story of the Popol Vuh, it's the story of, of Guatemala. Uh, it's the story of politics in, 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 in Central America. Uh, it's a, you know, the, the story of my family's migration histories. It's the story of the mass death that took place in the late 20th century during the Guatemalan Civil War. Uh, it's a story of persecution of Mayas. Uh, it's in contemporary times. Um, it's, it's um, yeah, it's, it's it, it all came at once. That's powerful. And, and I'm, I'm particularly struck by the way this um this questioner mm -hmm. sort of um 
I'm not going to say his name because I, <laughs> you know, I don't want to, I don't know, keep, keep whatever. But um, he was doing it in a good spirit. He really wanted me to get to what the the, the root of this work was for me. Um, and I'm grateful for it. Mm. Um, um, because when I have talked uh, about the books, so I've taught this book uh, at every level uh, um, uh, that one can um, uh, at a research university from introductory undergraduate classes, first year uh, to um, 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 collaboratively taught PhD seminars with my colleague in early modern studies, Tim Harrison. We taught a class, Paradise Lost and Popovu Creations. Um, 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 but I've also taught it outside of the um, uh, disciplinary context of academia um, to high schoolers at an arts magnet in San Diego, at Borderlands Magnet. Uh, and I've also taught it uh, to um, um, adult artists, largely indigenous and Latino uh, in Miami at the Institute for Contemporary Art. And I've also taught it, um, uh, or at least talked about it uh, to, um, 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 uh, I, I guess, uh, you know, indigenous elders and, 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 um, 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 yeah, like, you know, indigenous and Latino elders uh, in the context of work that I've been doing um, in Colorado um, for a, a Museum of Fine Arts at Colorado Springs there. And the question that I get, where I'm getting with this, the question that I most often get uh, from people who are coming at it uh, from um, um, an indigenous religious tradition is, what is your relation, right? And that was the question that I was being asked at Wake Forest, right? What is your relation, right? What, like, what is like your personal relation to this work? Don't tell me about I. You know, don't tell me about you know what you read and how you read it and what. Like, tell me what is your personal relation? Um, and and for me that was, um, you know, that was the answer um, that came when all other um, fake answers had been exhausted. That's beautiful, and I think sort of what we aspire for in academic q a's you know like uh, the audience and the the speaker the lecturer whatever cooperating and and some kind of process of discovery yes um, that, that's that's wonderful yeah and it's it's not genial like you know not, it need not be genetic in you know when i say relation right kinship isn't genetic it's, it's a question about like well you know how do you relate to this right what is you know how do you how, how do you live with right and not just think about um, um, is what I mean by relation there. Yeah. Um, my next question um, touches on relation. I think, um, mm -hmm. in my understanding, there's the earliest transcription of the Papavu resides in the city where you live, Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, belonging to a much older tradition, it was transcribed in 1702 under the watchful authorities of an oppressive colonial government. Um, what speaks to you about this text's emergence in a time of emergency? And in particular, um, what do you make of the, the 
geographic relationship you have to this text, the fact that you're both living. Well, I, in I'm shocked by the geographical relation. Uh, the, the, the fact that the Popol Vuh, sacred Mayan text, uh, um, uh, the only extant version that we have of it uh, is here, uh, about a 20 minute drive from me. Um, um, and here by so many, you know, quasi colonial circumnavigations around the Atlantic, first to France, and then um, by the purchase of Edward Ayer here to uh, Chicago when he finally you know, brought it back and then donated it to the Newberry Library. Um, um, it must be said that the Popol Vuh as a story or even storytelling tradition is far older than the 1702 version uh, that is held uh, at the Newberry Library. Um, um, you can see uh, representations of um, stories uh, of the Popol Vuh uh, uh, across Maya world, um, um, going back to the classical period, the early classical period, two three hundred um, A.D., um, um, uh, meaning uh, that these stories were circulating um, in um, uh, oral or hieroglyphic or uh, otherwise inscribed formats uh, for thousands of years uh, and continued to circulate even after they were put to paper in 1702, uh, such that uh, you can you know, catch glimpses of them in, in, in just about any book of Maya poetry that you might pick up today, um, uh, in, in just about any um, uh, work of anthropology that records uh, uh, contemporary Mayan songs, uh, um, whether those songs now uh, deal with the plight of migration, right? Mayan migrants coming to the United States because of deteriorating um, climate um, and thus deteriorating farmlands um, in their rural communities, right? You have this big influx of indigenous migration to the United States today. Um, um, three of the top 20 languages spoken in U.S. immigration courts in like 2017 or something uh, were Mayan languages. Uh, Mom, I believe, was more spoken than French, right? a Mayan language. Uh, you have this huge influx of Mayan migration because of the duration of the farmlands. Right? Even though they may be talking about that kind of thing, right? the Popovu still comes up. Right, uh, the the allusions to the Popol Vuh still come up. So you have this you know, circulation of the Popol Vuh, uh, this varia, right? This very this very orum, uh, of the Popol Vuh that transcends the object that we have at the Newberry Library. Uh, if anything, that object helps to locate uh, and situate the Popol Vuh at one um, important moment in time. And that moment in time uh, is important for me precisely because of its, I guess, colonial superordination, because of the fact that the authors that put it to paper at that moment were being tasked to do so by uh, Francisco Jimenez, a Dominican friar, a dog of Christ, right? The, the Dominicans, they call themselves the dogs of Christ. Uh, but, you know, one of these dogs of Christ, one of these leaders of the Inquisition, the Dominicans led the Inquisition in, in, the, in the Americans. Um, uh, it wasn't the Franciscans. Um, uh, one of these like dogs of Christ put to paper um, um, under uh, what, you know, it was a, you know, 
I imagine a very hostile context. Nonetheless, right? Nonetheless, even though, you know, even though they're uh, uh, um, 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 experiencing uh, uh, mass kin loss, mass cultural loss, the colonial context of being tasked to put this work to paper by a rather hostile entity who intends to include it in a four-part manual um, to better convert the Mayas of the Guatemalan highlands, right? So, so the Popol Vuh is put into a conversion manual. That's the way in which it arrives for contemporary times. They still, they still insist that they will bring the sun out of the sky that they will bring the world into existence, that their power to do so is undiminished and their creative capacity is akin to the world creative capacities of the gods. That's incredibly powerful for me. Who could never, right? <laughs> like, like what, what words are there? That's just powerful. I think a, a phrase you, you use in the book that um, struck me was, um, this is a, a, a text that's both world-making and world-shaking, mm-hmm. or, or language as world-making and world-shaking. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a wonderful phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Uh, in Emergency, you talk about your first encounter with the Popovu, an illustrated edition by Albertina Saravia's uh, Popol Wuj, uh-huh. printed in 1965. Mm-hmm. Um, what was distinctive about that version and how was uh, Saravia's multimodal text migrated into other forms, such as Patricia Amlin's uh, animated version? I think it was Carlos Fuentes who said that there isn't a work that comes out of Latin America that in some way or another doesn't retell the story of the Popol Vuh. I think it was Carlos Fuentes. It may have been somebody else, but there's a, a quote of that. Of, of that of that kind that circulated possibly spurious uh but nonetheless uh revealing um insofar as the popol vu uh um shoots through uh um um so many um intellectual traditions mayan mesoamerican and non-mayan non-mesoamerican um in the 20th century uh of course uh there was a deep suppression um and um, persecution of Mayan people, peoples and Mayan cultures in uh, uh, Guatemala during the Guatemalan Civil War, but also in Mexico and other places. Um, 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 so that works like Saravia, Albertina Saravia's Popo Rouge are quite radical um, 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 for what they're doing, uh, which is trying to reconstruct an intellectual tradition amidst so much erasure. Um, uh, In practical terms, what that means for her, right, for this book that she put together, which was the first version of the Popol Vuh that I had, it's a very popular version in Guatemala, um, uh, uh, is um, uh, a kind of redacted or simplified Popol Vuh with images taken from Mayan ceramics of classical times, uh, 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 classical and post-classical, from Mayan ceramics, Mayan stellas, uh, Mayan codices, uh, to re-visualize what 
likely at one point was a visual slash textual work. One imagines that the book that the 1702 version is referring to, um, uh, citing, uh, looking back to uh, from the 1550s uh, was, you know, put to paper possibly in hieroglyphic form. There's a huge argument about this, whether that 1550s version could have been hieroglyphic. Did it need to be hieroglyphic? Was it likely hieroglyphic? But one imagines that if you can see um, uh, the uh, stories of the Popol Vuh uh, represented in classical era, um, um, Maya works uh, hieroglyphically and, and and like, you know, para-hieroglyphically, quasi-hieroglyphically, then, then there was a tradition of representing the Popol Vuh hieroglyphic, certainly possibly until the uh, 1550s. And Saravia is trying to reanimate that tradition by giving you the visual with the textual alongside it. And um, Patricia Amlin, uh, 20 years later or so, uh, further amplifies that um, 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 attempt uh, by taking um, uh, the classical era ceramics of, of, of the Mayas um, and um, um, using them to animate the Popol Vuh cinematically. So it's you know, a cartoon, it's an animation, uh, but it's entirely done with the figures from the ceramics of classical era <laughs> Maya world. Uh, and they're astonishing works, deeply researched, very well done. And um, for me, um, important uh, as early engagements with this uh, text that really lives everywhere and um, um, and 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 lives to this day in uh, the stories that parents tell their children uh, at night um, in um, uh, in Central America and, and parts of Mexico. One of the things you talk about in the book is um, the way this um, earliest surviving transcription refers to Pedro de Alvarado um, as the sun god, right? Oh, yeah. Deeply upsetting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so in the Popol Vuh, uh, Pedro de Alvarado is called by the Nahuatl word, Donatil, uh, uh, the sun god. Right? It's a Nahuatl word. Um, um, and the authors of the Popol Vuh uh, call him that um, to... One, uh, mark his help, right? The help that he's getting from um, various uh, groups, uh, Nahua-speaking groups from uh, central Mexico who aided him in his uh, invasion of Central America in the mid-16th century. Uh, but also, so that's um, uh, problematic, uh, but also uh, because... The Popol Vuh, or the authors of the Popol Vuh in their philosophical outlook have this tendency to always want to capture the terms of the, of the conflict, um, uh, to say, yes, this is a story of bringing the sun into existence, and this is an apparent sun and a new sun in our world, but this sun will also uh, come to pass. 
right? Um, uh, this solar cycle, this 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 solar moment will also uh, come to pass, uh, just as every day uh, comes to pass. Uh, we will bring the sun into existence to replace this sun that has come into existence uh, uh, here. Um, and I say in the book that it's a frustrating moment because we expect uh, a little bit more antagonism uh, to Tornatiu, to Pedro Alvarado, to this like horrendous, uh, almost psychopathic or practically psychopathic uh, 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 conquistador. Uh, 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 but we don't get it. Uh, and it's interesting that we don't get it. Uh, it's provocative that we don't get it. Uh, and instead we get an attempt to integrate such hostility into a world of parallelistic transformations and ongoing uh, changes of things becoming other things. Pedro Alvarado exists in Maya world, right? Um, and the Popo Vu wants to claim that. Hmm. Despite that that choice in the text, the Popo Vu has been taken up by Maya revolutionaries, and this is something you discuss in the in Emergency. Yeah. Um, the Popo Vu is referenced in a declaration issued by the Zapatista Army of National Liberation, a communique by the uh, Las Abejas, a group <laughs> seeking justice for state human rights crimes. Yeah. Um, how how has the Popo Vu served as a store? for um, critiques of neoliberalism and state terrorism? Um, in those communiques, you will find uh, that um, uh, the Mexican judiciary is compared or represented as um, one of the villains of the Popo Vu, the uh, the, the Mexican military as another villain of the Popo Vu, um, the Mexican president as another, you know, this kind of thing, um, 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 showing us that the Popo Vu is an allegory of power that cuts, cuts in multiple directions. Right? It's a critique of colonialism to be sure, but it's also just a, a, a critique of greed and vanity uh, for which there is a clear place in contemporary times. I was compelled by this observation that what might seem like a static, formally rigid literary container actually brings together, and, and this is a quote from your book, um, heterogeneity, polyphony, translatability, non-isomorphy, reciprocity, recurrence, revision, and the non-synthesizing dialectic of Mesoamerica, end quote. Yeah, all those all those um, formal features that you mentioned uh, have been uh, touchstones for my not only uh, looking at the Popo Vu, but looking with the Popo Vu, and just to um, cite them again, heterogeneity, polyphony, translatability, isomorphy, reciprocity, recurrence, revision, and non-synthesizing dialectics are touchstones of the Popo Vu. Um, and scaling up a little bit, uh, the Popo Vu encourages us to take these as interpretive frameworks insofar as the Popo Vu calls itself Ilba'al, which means an instrument for seeing, right? uh, which to me translates immediately to theory, 
right? Uh, which is another word that comes from sight and spectacle, right? The visual, a way of seeing. Um, um, the Popol Vuh insists upon its applicability um, uh, as an interpretive framework, a thing not just to um, uh, uh, look at, but look with. Um, one, and it's calling itself Il Ba'al, and two, in showing us so many ways in which to look at the world, right? to see time differently, to see the past is not behind you, but very much in front of you all the time, to see your life uh, as uh, not constrained by just human engagements, but implicated in and impacting on the lives of the gods, right? uh, the lives of animals, uh, the lives of ancestors, right? um, uh, these ways of understanding um, um, uh, literary history, historiography, right? Like my my engagement with the work uh, have pushed me to uh, think more expansively with the Popol Vuh about, well, just like philosophy, um, theory, um, 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 the making of stuff in a world of made stuff. In 1975, the poet Ambar Past began a community project in San Cristobal de las Chiapas, which helps teach Mayas the traditional arts of paper making and binding. Yeah. Talk to us about the collections this foundation put together, translated into English as incantations, song spells, and images by Mayan women. I have a little bit. Um, when I was uh, talking about the contemporary Mayan poetry that talks about migration, um, uh, but also uh, that discusses alcoholism, uh, that discusses radio, uh, that discusses television, uh, alongside dreams, jaguars, and uh, uh, and 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 and, uh, and and the spirit beings that surround us. Um, uh, uh, um, it reminds us, this collection, uh, that the Popol Vuh is not a, um, a foregone or antiquated set of stories, but indeed uh, a set of stories that continue um, through contemporary storytelling practices and, 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 and poetries uh, to live into the present moment. But importantly, also, what's really radical about Ambar Past's project um, um, in collaboration uh, with the Maya communities of uh, Chapas uh, is that uh, she helped to bring back um, um, indigenous bookmaking practices right, from start to finish, right, indigenously made books with indigenous paper and indigenous ink and, and inks made from indigenous, uh, uh, from plants indigenous to the Americas, back to the Americas, even the Popol Vuh. Right, the one that we have here at the Newberry Library um, um, from 1702 is, 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 is composed of European paper and European ink. Right? It, it may have it's Mayan ideas and, and a Mayan storytelling practices again, but again, it's fully implicated in a kind of um, uh, colonial framework uh, that Amber Past has like even looked behind and beyond uh, with her collaborators. Um, so in, in, in that way, it's, it's, it's tremendous. Um, uh, the work that has happened in, 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 in Chapas. Here's a great film. Um, that also brings this to light if people can't uh, uh, find 
um, one of these books to look at. They're quite rare now. Uh, there have been reproductions, uh, obviously not the handmade ones uh, by Mayan artists and artisans. Um, um, uh, but there's a great film that also brings this to light, uh, Rolando Klein's Chalk the Rain God. Um, and what I love about Chalk it's, I think it's a 1975 or so uh, film. Uh, what I love about Chalk, the Rain God, uh, is that Klein went out there with a loose script uh, to the same communities that Ambar Past is working with in Chapas, uh, with a loose script uh, based in a vague way on the Popovu. The script being there was a drought and this community needs to bring the rain into existence. Um, 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 and he finds that these uh, non-actors that he um, uh, conscribes into his film know the Popol Vuh. They can act out the Popol Vuh. They've been carrying the stories of the Popol Vuh without even knowing that there was a book of the Popol Vuh, right? without ever having seen a film, without ever you know seen a film camera. Um, and so he kind of lets them. You know, it's a loose script, but you know he kind of lets them act out their stories, and it's a um, a phenomenal uh, 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 example of how this story um, uh, continues to bind people together and, 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 and let them live their lives. Oh, and can I say too that one of the one of the wild things about this Chalk the Rain God was while making a film about the problem of drought and trying to bring the rain into existence and 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 having to conduct a set of um, uh, rain ceremonies to bring the sun into existence. One of the challenges in filming for Rolando Klein was that they found it very hard to represent drought because it just kept raining so much. <laughs> it, was, it was, you know, it was... <laughs> sorry, that, that's, you know, again, going back to there are some things which... Um, are hard to um, to explain. The final essay in Emergency is titled Mormons, and you you explore. I I enjoyed the way you unwound this complexity. the The Book of Mormon is displacing this um, the, the traditional region of uh, traditional religions of this area, but. You've also identified some ways in which um, Guatemalan Mormons, I believe, have integrated the Popovu into this worldview. C can you talk to us a little bit about your thoughts about um, Mormonism and the Popovu and that relationship? Sure. It's one of the questions I get the most is, why does this book end with Mormons? <laughs> uh, and the reason uh, why is because there is a, a, a kind of fascinating geographical feature of the Book of Mormon, which um, uh, uh, Mormon scholars uh, have um, uh, been thinking through for many years uh, in trying to identify where these events took place, where the lost tribes of Israel uh, ended up when they immigrated um, you know, out of the Levantine uh, and into the broader world, um, uh, uh, and you know, according to the Book of Mormon, into the Americas, and based on 
travel times between rivers and bodies of water and certain mountains and hills, there had been two dominant um, 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 uh, um, schools uh, on, on this issue. One, that it took place in the Great Lakes somewhere, the stories of the Book of Mormon, right? The Nephites, uh, the 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 Jaredites, the um, I can't remember all the different tribes right now. The Lamanites, uh, you know, where all these people had their uh, many many years of of of, of activity, um, uh, um, the Great Lakes or Mesoamerica. It seems that it cannot be the Great Lakes uh, because um, there is um, no mention of snow in the Book of Mormons. And anyone who has lived around the Great Lakes knows that there's um, uh, you know, abundance of that for a large part of the year. And uh, also um, uh, descriptions of um, hot weather around the new year again, uh, uh, suggesting a more uh, tropical, uh, hot uh, environment, leading to a, um, you know, a kind of implicit conclusion that the Book of Mormon takes place in Mesoamerica, right, in the Isthmus of Tehuantepec. Um, uh, hence, you have a lot of really great, this is not at all to criticize Mormonism as a belief system in any way, shape, or form, really great scholarship on Mesoamerican archaeology that you know is done by Mormons. Um, and I find that fascinating. Um, uh, but more fascinating, to finally get to your point, for me, more fascinating is what Guatemalan Mormons have done with this, uh, which is to say, okay, if it is the case that the Book of Mormon takes place here in Mesoamerica, right, and we, Mayas, right, are the original Mormons, let's say, well then, it follows that the Book of Mormon is a secondary text, and the primary text is the Popol Vuh. Uh, so there's been a, you know, a double displacement, if you will. Uh, one, by the Book of Mormon in Mesoamerica, but then also of the Book of Mormon by Mesoamericans, by Mayas of Central America, with their own uh, text and textual prerogatives, um, uh, recentering um, again uh, the Popol Vuh um, uh, uh, within uh, Mormonism, and I've, I I find that extraordinary, amazing, intellectually complicated, um, uh, for many of the similar reasons that I find uh, the restaging, recasting, integration of. You know, like Donatio, right? You have, you know, this kind of like, this, um, you know, um, uh, assertion uh, um, of one's capacity to hold a world in place. I enjoyed your reading of, or your critique, really, of John Donne's um, devotions upon emergent occasions, you know, um, and your reading is that the the poetry builds towards a sense of uh, it's written in a time of pestilence 
and it builds towards a human triumphalism and a kind of disavowal of humility. And um, I, I would just like to ask you to um, expand on that. Or I do want to say that I, a plug for my good friend and collaborator, Tim Harrison, who's got a book coming out on this very work of done. It's a great book. Um, and, and, and it may be the case that I have a, a you know, a, a, a somewhat limited reading of done at that moment, but I also do think that done uh, is a part of a humanist tradition, which even in its uh, self-humbling uh, amidst uh, the pestilence and, and pesty creatures of the world still always seeks to recenter the human. Um, and the, um, you, know, the, the, you know, yet another frustrating thing about the Popol Vuh is that it never seeks to do that. Um, and in fact, so many of the little critters that help the hero twins to achieve their final goal of achieving the flesh substance uh, maze um, uh, by which humans can be brought into existence are the, the, the critters that annoy us most. Ants, mosquitoes, rats right the, the you know the, the the vermin of the world the you know the, the 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 creatures that i would smack off my leg if i felt them there in an instant right the, the mosquito um um to valorize and elevate um those critters um um it's not only intellectually provocative um and in, in a time of um of of ecological crisis and climate change uh, but was also for me um, uh, conceptually challenging uh, in a moment of um, a viral pandemic, right? And and again, you know, bringing me back to the question, started off uh, uh, you know, uh, um, at the very beginning of the Popol Vuh uh, with the you know with the gods. Why should there be humans? <laughs> You know, why should there be humans um, and what should they be like? And finally, um, um, as uh, um, readers of the Popol Vuh will know, um, the kind of humans the gods want, the kind of people the gods want are people of contradiction. The reason the animals upset them, the reason the mud people have, you know, frustrate them, the reason the wood people you know, aren't right is because none of these beings have contradiction. And the gods want beings that resemble them, that can mirror them, that can speak to them. And they, the gods, are beings of contradiction, themselves beings of crisis. And they want that um, um, in their uh, creation. And the crisis, you know, returning to the done, um, um, extends down into the most minor of creatures um, in our need and hate for them. I'd like to touch on teaching. Uh, I know you incorporate um, material culture into your classes, as as you mentioned earlier. What kinds of exercises have you used uh, in your classrooms for students to gain a familiarity with the Papua Vu? One of the um, biggest challenges in engaging a sacred text like this is getting students comfortable enough uh, uh, to feel they can say anything about it, um, to feel they can do anything with it, uh, even though the text 
is telling us in so many moments that it wants us to, right? Calling itself an ilba'al, an instrument of seeing, uh, uh, a theory-bearing book. Um, um, so what I try to do um, in staging uh, um, that instrumentalization, um, not respectful, but, you know, um, practical, uh, is <laughs> I encourage them to take a concept from the Popovu, it could be one of the concepts we've talked about in our very conversation, heterogeneity, polyphony, translatability, non-isomorphy, reciprocity, revision, so on, uh, or some other concept that they may have found for themselves, uh, chiasmus, um, afterlife, right? Um, 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 uh, myth history, hmm? um, and take a con take one of those concepts and interpret a work of Western literature with it. We are so very often encouraged implicitly to work in the opposite way, where we get all our intellectual concepts um, from um, Western Europe, uh, all our theory from Western Europe, uh, by which to see and interpret the works of the Americas. And I encourage students to do the Opposite, the obverse. Take a concept from the Popol Vuh and tell me something about Dante. Tell me something about Milton. Uh, tell me something about Jane Austen. Tell me, you know, tell me something about oh, a work that seems self-stable and complicated uh, uh, with the philosophical traditions and um, conceptual inheritances of the Americas. I think that leads really well into my next question, which is: You mentioned you've taught this course with Timothy Harrison on Paradise Lost and the Popol Vuh, <laughs> and um, before we started recording, we. Uh, we discussed different questions that this raises, you know, mm -hmm. why pair these two texts? Um, yeah. What sorts of things can you do in a classroom with such different texts? Yes. Uh, can you tell us about that course? Absolutely. Uh, it was one of the most exciting, uh, intellectually uh, alive, um, um, <laughs> I don't know, disciplinarily fulfilling courses I've ever taught, uh, 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 precisely because of the conceptual challenge of putting these two works, which really aren't that historically far apart, right? Um, uh, about 40 years um, um, in, um, in distance uh, in their um, in the two moments in which they're put to paper, Paradise Lost and Popol Vuh, and yet apparently worlds apart, um, in spite of a kind of um, um, early modern uh, integrated Atlantic uh, um, uh, that we might um, summon uh, to help contextualize them. That's not what we wanted to do. We actually wanted to think with their difference, think with their distance, and see, well, what, you know, um, 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 in what ways uh, can we structure uh, comparison and a uh, scene of comparability when there you know, is, is no genetic relation? Mm -hmm. um, 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 it was asked to us, well, wouldn't it be better if there was a scholar who knew, who was an expert in both these texts um, and who uh, uh, could thus um, integrate them for himself, herself, themselves, for students. Uh, and, and our response is no, because then what you lose is the productive bewilderment 
the performance of non-mastery, the disciplinary surprise and self-reflection that comes in having to state your case right against another's. Um, um, it was this uh, mode that showed us, for instance, that even though Milton and Dante might be more citationally akin, insofar as they're all they're both uh, citing many of the same uh, classical authors and 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 works of the Bible, uh, they couldn't be farther apart when you triangulate those two with the Popol Vuh, insofar as you see that, well, actually, Milton and the Popol Vuh are both anti-Dante. Uh, they, you know, in, insofar as you know, they both have this deep allergy to Catholicism. Uh, neither one of those two works, uh, Paradise Lost and Popol Vuh, has any people in the underworld, any dead people in the underworld, because they're both kind of mortalist works. Uh, they, they both kind of believe that, or just kind of very ambivalent about what happens after uh, 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 death. Um, in, in terms of like, you know, like uh, Catholic doctrine, they couldn't be more akin right, in their distance and allergy to it, um, their antagonism uh, uh, to it even. Um, and it was only the performance of non-mastery. It was only the productive bewilderment that could have ever, ever brought us and the students to these kinds of um, realizations um, um, and abilities to think um, with the Popol Vuh and Paradise Lost uh, rather than assume that we knew where paradise lost stood in the world and where the Popol Vuh stood in the world. I love that. I love the idea of productive bewilderment and the, the staging of non-mastery in the classroom. Um, it, a, a technical question. Did um, you assign like a, a book of paradise lost and a section of Popol Vuh? No, that would have never worked because okay. the, the moments we wanted to match up we, so we thought for a really long time. We've thought about this course for years before we taught it. <laughs> uh, and, and the reason that wouldn't have worked is because the moments that we wanted to put into comparison don't happen narratologically at the same time in the two works, right? So if we read one book or two you know, books from Paradise Lost and one portion, the beginning portion of the Popol Vuh, they, they wouldn't match up because it's they're not, you know, uh, that they don't synchronize uh, narratively. So what we had students do was read all of Paradise Lost and all of the Popol Vuh before class, <laughs> right? Before we sent them an email before class even started because it was the only way we could handle or manage a course like this was we had them read the whole thing, uh, all books of Paradise Lost and the whole of the Popol Vuh before class even started um, so that when class started, we could zoom in Right, without without always having to um, uh, narrativize for them what's happening, what's happened, and what may what's 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 to come in either one of these works. Right? Um, and 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 week one, we kind of get it, give the summary of. I think we did started with Popol Vuh. Week two gave the summary of Paradise Lost. Week three, we were ready to jam and 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 move around much more. Uh, liberally uh, uh, than um, we would have been able to do if we had you know, read book by book like that. Yeah, I think that's that's great. And I, I, you know, I taught Paradise Lost last semester, 
And I do think there is like a, a limitation on what you can do in the classroom when you're, as you were saying, kind of like narrativizing it where students are only, they've only read book one and then yeah. you're trying to discuss it and it's yeah. very limiting, you know? Absolutely. Um, because both the Paradise Lost and the Popo Vuh have integral structures where the, the structure of the whole um, flashes up in, in in so many smaller moments throughout the work. So you kind of always have to keep telling students, well, you know, this is going to happen or this is, you know, this is the bigger story. Um, 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 and we, you know, we were blessed uh, that it was a PhD seminar. So we could just <laughs> kind of tell them that you can tell a PhD student to read all of Paradise Lost before class. And you, know, you kind of expect them to do it in a way you would never expect an undergrad to do that. Um, and, 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 and so it worked in that way. Mm, that's awesome. Um, I also have to put a plug in right now for a dear friend of mine, Ariana Rains, uh, poet, uh, who is uh, this fall teaching an online seminar in her invisible college on Paradise Lost. And um, we've been kind of going back and forth about it a little bit. And I think it's going to be great. They're going to take a whole year to read Paradise Lost. Um, very yeah. cool. Yeah. <laughs> Um, now that this book is out in the world, um, what are you turning your attention to? It, it, are you at work on another book? Do you have a hobby? Is there another course you're developing? Yes, I, uh, I've, I've been stuck in the early modern world uh, ever since I um, threw myself into the Popol Vuh, which, you know, though it's put to paper in 1702, has a kind of ur text in um, the 1550s, um, which is also the time when a manuscript of songs called the Cantares Mexicanos uh, was put to paper, the 1550s. And that's a Nahuatl language, uh, uh, indigenous language of central Mexico, uh, a Nahuatl language um, uh, uh, work uh, that um, um, is a kind of um uh, anthology of the musical traditions before the Spaniards, or I should say the Castilians, uh arrived on the coasts of the Americas. Um uh but uh, and, and for that reason, you know, it's, it's got, uh, it's very granulated with all the conflicts, um, uh, political, geopolitical, um, uh, that plagued, uh, troubled Mesoamerica before the Spanish even came. Um, <laughs> but because it's also uh, put to paper in the 1550s after the Spanish had already come, after there were adults in the world right, who had lived their whole life um, um, under the domination of the Spanish, uh, it's got a complicated relationship to time. Um, um, you know, some of the songs may be remembered. Some of the songs may be invented. Um, uh, some of the songs... Uh, um, 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 maybe uh, translations of works that no longer exist, adaptations of works that no longer exist. Many of the songs relate, uh, as I said, geopolitical conflicts that preceded the Spaniards in the broader empire of the Mexica and their enemies. But many of the songs are also about like 
conflicts with Christianity. Uh, so again, it's a s collection of world creation that's coming out of crisis that I've uh, translated and adapted and written little essays for um, um, over uh, the past three years, basically, since I was finishing up the Popol Vuh book, I turned my attention to these cantares um, and 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 wrote that book, uh, which led me sort of circuitously to the book that I've been working on also in the 16th, 17th century, which is this book about the Baroque painter Caravaggio, um, in whom I see an avatar of what I call Baroque sovereignty um, or um, um, uh, the state of exception uh, as it played out uh, in the Americas, both um, politically and, 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 and aesthetically. And those two works are, they're, they're um, um, somewhere between works of poetry and, um, and essays. And, and, and I've also had this now, very long and ongoing project on um, um, divination and, and and a critique of probabilistic thinking and uh, in our understanding of of migration and demographics and uh, returning um, or showcasing how there have been many contemporary works which have sought to return to a form of risk thinking that is not probabilistic in nature but that um, it's kind of like more affiliated with uh, the risk thinking of the Renaissance, like uh, fate, fortune, and influence. Um, and I've been working on that book for a long time now. We'll keep our eyes out for those projects. Uh, thank you for coming on the podcast, Eddie. John, thank you so much. It has been a real pleasure. <laughs>